Okay. Well, printed there in your worship guide. Uh, it says New Testament reading. That's my bad. I know that Micah. I do know that Micah is in the Old Testament. Um, so this is our Old Testament reading. Uh, Micah chapter 5. If you have the Pew Bibles, that is on page 778 and 779. This is one of the great Old Testament prophecies about Jesus' birth. settled here. Okay, Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Please pay attention to the reading of God's word. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah? From you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall gather them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, In the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword, and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. This scripture here, not only the fact that it points to Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, it it points to the reality of the rising and falling of kingdoms. And that is really the story of world history, right? If we study world history, the main events that we're going to see pretty much are going to be the rising and falling kingdoms. Of great empires, which fittingly brings us to our passage for this morning in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. Again, if you have the Pew Bibles, that is on page 857. Well, I love history. I've, I've grown to love history. I think more as an adult, I've, I, I love church history and I've been begun to appreciate world history a little bit more. Uh, But unfortunately, that's something I don't think I learned very well as a child. Uh, I don't think I appreciated history uh, as a child. And it's fun to see uh, my own educational shortcomings being redeemed. And if you were here last week, I'm intentionally using that word incorrectly. But being redeemed through my kids' education and seeing them learn world history and and being to kind of engage in that and be a part of that. Our kids do classical conversations, and kind of one of the first things they do is they, they begin to learn this timeline song. And it's a song that's about 12 minutes long. It's got hand motions that go with it, and it's really incredible uh, going from all the way from creation up until the modern day, uh, going through major events, going through political movements, going through kingdoms and, and people who have, have dominated in history. 
For the most part, it's stories of, of power and charisma and dominance and, and people who are influential and innovative. And around the three-minute mark is my favorite part of the song. And every time I sing it, I get a little choked up. And it's the context of our passage this morning. This section of the song, I'm not going to sing it, I'm just going to say it. It says, Roman dictator Julius Caesar, Caesar Augustus, and the Pax Romana. John the Baptist, and then there's kind of this long, drawn-out pause. Jesus the Messiah. And there's this pause in that part of the song. Because we ought to stop and consider the magnitude and the majesty of who Jesus is. That in the first three minutes of this song, beginning with the creation of the world, all the way up until Jesus' birth, there is this anticipation and this pointing forward. And then in the last nine minutes of the song, from the birth of Christ all the way up into the present day, there's this pointing back to how history has changed and been shaped because of Jesus' birth. And this is the single most important event in all of human history. It's the event that all other events and political movements and kingdoms and people ultimately hinge upon. This is the greatest disruption of all time. If you're following along, that's the title of the message this morning. The greatest disruption of all time. But not just as some facts in our timeline song. It's not just a nice history lesson that we should brush up on every now and then. This is a disruption that works its way into the very core of our being. And if we just celebrate Advent and we talk about the Christmas story as some nice historical event that doesn't really have any bearing on our lives, then we totally miss the point of what God is doing. My question for us this morning, as a church, collectively, and as individuals, are we willing to embrace God's disruption of our lives? Write that down. I don't care if you're not taking notes for the rest of the message. Write this question down. You can write it in the first person if you want to. Am I willing to embrace God's disruption of my life? Will we slow down enough? Will we stop to ponder like Mary did? Will we stop to worship and to listen? I'm not just talking about during the next 10 days of craziness, right? As we wrap up the year and and celebrate and go here and there. But in our day-to-day lives, day in and day out, during the ordinary busyness of our lives, Are we willing to pray, Lord, come and by your grace disrupt my life? I believe that's what the Christmas story is really all about. So let's read it and let's ponder together how the Lord might be calling us as a church and as individuals to embrace his gracious gracious disruption of our lives. Luke chapter 2 verses 1 through 20. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. 
And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this description of events that happened surrounding the birth of your son. Thank you for the reminder we have here in your word of how you came and invaded history, how you disrupted the plans of governments, the plans of individuals, the plans in our own hearts. God, may we allow our lives to be graciously disrupted by you. May we hear from you this morning. May we see your grace. May we see the truth of who we are in Christ because of the gospel. And may we live these truths out for all around us to see. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have the outline there that is uh, on the inserts of the worship guide and you're following along, going to be arguing from the greater to the lesser. First, we're going to look at a kingdom-shaking disruption. So we're kind of looking at the whole world. We're going to look at a life-shaking disruption. So we'll look at kind of corporate and familial or or individual lives being disrupted. And then we're going to look at a heart-shaking disruption. So that will be kind of the individual element there. First, a kingdom-shaking disruption. Bit of a world history lesson quickly, kind of why I shared the timeline. Julius Caesar, the great Roman emperor, was a, a political and military general who rose to power and became dictator for life. Kind of very interesting. We've been hearing that language a bit uh, in some countries around the world lately. 
It's not a new invention. Uh, Caesar was called dictator for life in the Roman Republic until conveniently he was assassinated and was no longer alive to be dictator for life. 444 BC, he was assassinated. His grandnephew, Octavian, who became his adopted son, who we just read about here, Caesar Augustus, he became emperor in his place. Julius Caesar was later deified. Uh, His birth began to be celebrated as an event that was symbolized as the beginning of all things. Sounds familiar. Augustus reigned for 40 years from 27 BC to 14 AD. So the events that we're looking at here are kind of right in the middle of his reign. He is known for beginning the Pax Romana, the the Peace of Rome, uh, where Rome ruled the Most of the known world at that time, about 70 million people, which was about a third of the world's population. They dominated what is what we now know as Europe and northern Africa and parts of the Middle East. This idea of of the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, does not mean the absence, the total absence of war or the absence of revolts. But it was a time of political stability and a time of military dominance that the Romans had in the world at that time. And Augustus, as the adopted son of Julius Caesar, who was deified, he began to be called the Son of God and the Savior who brought peace to all the world. This is incredibly significant because we are intended to see here the contrast between Augustus Caesar, the most powerful man in the world, and this little baby who was born to a poor virgin mother. This poor couple, Joseph and Mary, who had to travel 90 miles while pregnant. Mary is pregnant, traveling 90 miles so that the empire to which they were subjugated could tax them and continue to keep tabs on them. This is not a picture of strength. This is a picture of being politically dominated. This is David and Goliath on steroids. And speaking of David, we're told here that Mary and Joseph go up to Bethlehem, the city of David, because Joseph was from the house and the lineage of David. Now the city of David is mentioned 45 times in the Old Testament. Do you know how many of those times the city of David refers to Bethlehem? Take a guess. Zero. Why? Where was the city of David? It's Jerusalem, right? It's where David reigned as king. That was the city of David, Zion. So why is Bethlehem here called the city of David? I think it's very fitting to kind of what's going on in this passage. It's where David came from, right? That's where he was a scrawny little shepherd boy out in the field when he was called to come and fight Goliath, and then to be king. The power came from a a no-name place. The king came from this little podunk town. And this also fulfills the prophecy in Micah chapter 5, which we read earlier. I'll just read part of this again, Micah 5, beginning in verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah... 
from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. So we're already seeing this paradox. Bethlehem is this tiny little place. And the ruler of Israel is going to come from Bethlehem. Totally unexpected. Whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace. That's the promise. That is the promise that they were looking forward to. So the point of this prophecy is that it shatters expectations. You remember when Jesus called his disciples, Philip said to Nathanael, We found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And what does Nathanael say to Philip? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Right? Where Jesus grew up, this little town. The same thing here, right? Can anything good, in other words, can the Messiah, the promised king, really come from Bethlehem? God said he would. And they should have seen it coming, but they missed it. And Luke here is drawing on these incredible contrasts between political height and political power and then the lowliness and the weakness of Joseph and Mary and their little baby who was wrapped in strips of cloth and placed in a feeding trough. That's not what the people expected when they anticipated the Messiah's birth. That's not the picture of Isaiah 9 either. Isaiah 9 verse 2 and then verses 6 through 7. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So what is going on here? What is God up to in all these events? While Caesar Augustus is flexing his political muscles and the Roman Empire is enjoying their world domination, the kingdom of God is coming to disrupt the current order of things. And not through some equal or greater show of physical power. That's not how the Lord is working here. But it's by the establishment of an eternal kingdom. It's the kingdom that was promised to David in 2 Samuel 7 that one of his descendants would sit on the throne of Israel forever. It's a kingdom that will be ruled by the king of kings to whom one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And the question for us, brothers and sisters, is do we really believe this? Do we believe that this is true? Do we believe in our current situation in the midst of the struggles for power between two kingdoms, our two political parties, 
in the midst of anxiety over the future, in the midst of all the debates over President Trump's impeachment, which might dominate your conversations at the Christmas dinner table, are we able unashamedly with confidence to take a step back from the craziness of what is going on around us and proclaim that our hope is not in the earthly kingdom of America and its fall or, or rise, right? Our hope is in the kingdom of God and the Savior of sinners, Jesus Christ the Lord. If you've been around here a while, you've probably heard me kind of rant on these things before, and I'm, I'm probably a little more sensitive to them because I spent about half of my adult life living in another country where I wasn't a citizen. I've felt this tension of like not really belonging, like not knowing where I belong. But that's the reality of the Christian life, isn't it? That's just a picture of what it's like to be a Christian in this world. And I'm thankful that I got to have that experience because it gives me a deeper sense, a deeper passion. But it doesn't mean just because all of you haven't lived a good chunk of your life overseas that you don't still feel this same tension. We ought to feel this same tension as citizens of our, the earthly kingdom that we live in, but really our citizenship is in another kingdom. Our identity is firmly grounded in who we really are as a people in this history-altering, kingdom-shaking narrative that dominates the whole Christmas story. And that's the, that's the bigger picture. That's the 30,000-foot view that I think we're meant to see when we look at this passage. So we've, we've seen that. Let's just kind of zoom in a little bit now and look a little bit closer and see how this kingdom-shaking disruption impacts and disrupts our lives. Again, the question that I put before us, if you still haven't written it down, you got two more chances. As a church and as individuals, are we willing to embrace God's disruption of our lives? Will we slow down and stop to ponder and to worship and to listen? That's what we're going to see in our next section, a life shaking disruption first we need to back up a bit to the events in chapter one there was mary going about her business right all of a sudden i don't know what she was doing you know she might have been working she might have been resting all of a sudden this angel shows up right this angel appears to her and tells her that she's going to give birth to the son of god hello this is quite a disruption it's probably not the direction that she thought her life was going to go, right? She didn't have this on her timeline, you know, plotted out for, for her life. But her response was amazing. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And this disruption has now fully played itself out here as Mary and Joseph are in Bethlehem and she's about to give birth. So their lives are, are disrupted and they're changed forever. And we could talk a lot about that. But we're going to move on to the next group of people. It wasn't just Mary and Joseph whose lives were disrupted, but also the shepherds. This group of smelly old shepherds, minding their business, out in the fields at night, just doing their job, right? When they get a visit from an angel. We see in verse 9. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. 
If you look back just at the end of the last chapter, chapter 1, this is a beautiful picture of the end of Zechariah's prophecy that we looked at last week. Verse 78 and 79, Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, we talked about, that's talking about Jesus, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Now, this is some figurative language here, but literally... The light of God comes and shines on these shepherds. The light, it's the middle of the night, right? And the, the glory of God and the, his light comes and shines and just blasts through the darkness onto these shepherds in the middle of the night. And here we have this promise of who Jesus is. And it says that they are filled with great fear. And we kind of talked about this through, through Luke. He, he likes to do this where he kind of doubles up the words for emphasis it literally reads that they were, they were afraid, fear great. So there's this, like, he doubles up the word for fear twice. Like, they were afraid with a fear that was great. And so, like, they're just completely terrified. It's not like they were like, oh, what is going on? No, they're, they're like, dying. I mean, they're just, like, they're completely afraid, completely terrified. And rightfully so. And the angel... The angel's response to them, he speaks the same words that he spoke to Zechariah in the temple and the words that he spoke to Mary. Fear not. Do not be afraid, shepherds. Why? Verse 10. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. The angel preached to the shepherds. That's what this word is. This word, bring good news, is usually translated preach or proclaim. It's where we get the word evangelize. It's euangelizo is the Greek word. So that word evangelize, preach, proclaim, that's what the shepherd is coming. He's saying, I'm coming to preach the good news about Jesus to you right here in this field. And he brings what? Good news of great joy. And there's a very clear contrast here between great joy and great fear, which came over them, right? He's saying, don't be afraid because I'm bringing you good news of great joy. You don't need to have great fear. I'm telling you about great joy. And it's great joy that will be for all the people. Now, again, if if you haven't been with us, we're going through Luke's gospel uh, methodically and slowly, and we're going to be seeing a lot of these themes over the next year or so as we go through Luke. In Luke, the emphasis one of the the big things that Luke emphasizes is the universality of the gospel message. This is a big thing, that the gospel doesn't just come to the Jews. It also comes to the Gentiles. We have so much emphasis in Luke on on the poor and on the disadvantaged, and that we're starting to see that, that theme start to be woven in here. This good news of great joy is for all the people. And then notice what the angel says in verse 11. This is kind of strange. He says, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, unto Mary and Joseph is born this day, which would have been accurate, right? Would have made sense. Or unto the Jewish people is born today. He says, unto you, you smelly old shepherds sitting out here in the fields, not sleeping in a comfortable bed somewhere. Unto you is born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. You know, shepherds, how Caesar is called Savior and Lord? Well, guess what? 
He's a phony. This is the real Savior and Lord. Do not be afraid of him and his kingdom, right? Fear God. And then the angel gives them a sign. This is the proof that what he's telling them is true. He says, he says go to the temple in Jerusalem where you will find the high priest and all the religious leaders who have been waiting expectantly for the Messiah, for he has been born in the palace, the holiest place in all of Israel. No! Go to the city of David, podunk little Bethlehem, and here's what you'll find. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. What? And they're not even given a chance to to ask any questions. And if they weren't scared enough, all of a sudden in verse 13, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, which is literally saying heaven's army of angels. And what is this army doing? This army is not trying to maintain the peace of Rome. This army is not surrounding the emperor in order to protect him so he doesn't get assassinated like his uncle. This army is not out exacting taxes from poor Jews or demanding military service from the young men in the empire. They are worshiping God and they are singing his praises. Glory to God in the highest, not to Caesar. And on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased or upon whom his favor rests. Another way we can translate that. Not peace to those who obey Rome and pay their taxes and don't rebel. Glory to God whose kingdom, rule, and reign has broken into history and disrupted the whole world system by sending the actual Son of God, the Savior who nobody was looking for, in a nowhere town, to a nobody couple who would be greeted by nobody shepherds. So how do we feel about being nobodies in the kingdom of God? That's pretty much the heart behind the question that I asked us this morning. Are we willing to embrace God's disruption of our lives? For me, I'll be honest, uh, my freshman year in college, I didn't have wonderful plans for my life. Uh, I was living foolishly in the moment, pretty much unconcerned with the things I was affecting and the, the impact that my youthful pursuits were having on my life and those around me. And one night, God broke through. While I was sitting in darkness, God broke through and the sunrise visited me from on high and caused some serious disruption in my life, confronting me in my sin and in my rebellion to God. And my life has never been the same. And I praise God for that. And there's been some other pretty big disruptions to my plans. Moving overseas and moving back again. Having eight children and planting a church. Do you know how many of those things I was planning on doing as a young freshman in college? Yeah, you guessed it. Zero. And I'm not sharing these things because I want anyone's admiration. I don't want you to come up and pat me on the back. If there's something that I want God-glorifying admiration for as people look at my life, as, as Lindsay and the kids look at my life, as my friends, and as all of you, I'm not saying you're not my friends. You know what I mean? 
it's not all that I've supposedly accomplished in life and ministry, right? It's the slow, steady, faithful, day in and day out trust in Christ and pointing others to him. And you want to know what? That's really stinking hard. And I fail at it most days. Because it goes beyond life's disruptions and and moving here or moving there, taking this job or that job. It is the heart-shaking disruptions of ordinary Christian discipleship, what Eugene Peterson calls a long obedience in the same direction. If I haven't already been ranting, I'm going to go off for a minute. This church plant here in Oshkosh is not just some flash in the pan. This is not some smoke and mirrors thing where we're just attempting to draw people in with some fancy show. This is long, steady, faithful, grinded out work. And it doesn't all rest on me. You, are, you all are involved in this process too. I've shared this quote before. It's on our website from Leslie Newbegin in the Gospel in a Pluralist Society, he asked the question, how is it possible that the gospel should be credible, that people should come to believe that the power which has the last word in human affairs is represented by a man hanging on a cross? His answer, I am suggesting that the only answer, the only hermeneutic, meaning the way that people are going to see and understand, the only hermeneutic of the gospel is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live by it. He doesn't say a pastor who tries really hard and overworks himself and burns himself out because he has to do all the work. He says a congregation of men and women who believe it and live by it. And I praise God that we have that here. And I am thankful for you. And you are my friends. And I love you all. Seriously. But it is those who have allowed their lives and allowed their hearts to be graciously disrupted by God and who have lived that out in the world around them. That's who God is calling us to be, Living Stone Church. As we look at these last several verses, we'll see more of this heart-shaking disruption. This last section here, verses 15 to 20, there's kind of this rapid-fire response. The shepherds, they don't just sit sit around deliberating and, and wondering if they'll be laughed out of town for their claims to have been visited by angels. It says in verse 16 that they went with haste and they found Joseph and Mary and Jesus and they told them about all the things that the angels had said to them. And then we see the response in verse 18. It says that all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. We saw this in the response to John the Baptist's birth. It says that they wondered. And it's not, they're not like, huh, I wonder what's going on. It's that they're in awe. They're, in, they're amazed at what is happening. And then we see Mary's response in verse 19. It says, Mary treasured up all these things. It means she, she kept these things close to her. She treasured them, pondering them in her heart. It meant that she was, she was mulling them over. She was thinking about them. And it wasn't just a one-time event. And we're going to, a little kind of, teaser uh, for next week. James is going to be sharing uh, the the rest of Luke chapter 2, but Mary is going to be given a lot to think over, and it's not always going to be good things. Uh, Her life is going to be seriously disrupted, and I'll just leave that as a teaser uh, for next week. 
And then finally we have, in verse 20, the shepherd's response, which kind of rounds out the human improbability of this whole narrative. It says, The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. So God has broken through here in a mighty way, invading and disrupting one of the most, one of the most powerful empires in all of human history, He's disrupted the lives of Mary and Joseph and of these shepherds. And now we conclude with this picture of these unexpected heroes of faith, these shepherds going back to their ordinary life in the fields, right? They went back to work, glorifying and praising God as they go. Having had their lives and their hearts sovereignly and graciously disrupted by the arrival of the Savior of the world. And again, I ask, what about us? this Christmas season? Are we willing to embrace God's disruption of our lives? When just about everything around us is set up to distract us from where our focus should be, will we slow down enough? Will we stop to ponder and to worship and to listen to the greatest disruption of all time? That song that we looked at with the kids, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, has a lot to do with this. Has a lot to do with disruption in our lives. And in that third verse, we saw it. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. As much as we celebrate Christmas and the birth of Jesus and sing about it and praise God, it's not the end of the story, right? He was born that he might come and live and die and die for us. Born that man no more may die. I mean, we read that and we're like, wait, like we're going to die, right? We're still going to die. I mean, unless Jesus comes back, we're all going to die, right? But he, he was born so that we wouldn't die, die, Right? He was born that we might live forever, that we might be raised with him, that we might be given second birth. And that's talking about being born again. So the birth of Christ points us to our need to be born again. It points us to the cross. It points us to the purpose which he ultimately came into the world for, that he would live and die as a substitute on the cross, that he would pay the penalty for our sins. So even this week as we're thinking about the manger, as we're thinking about all these things, even as we're thinking about the inbreaking of God's kingdom and what that meant in the Roman Empire, that wasn't the end of the story, right? And really, that whole, that whole contrast sets up the picture of, of the trajectory of Jesus' life, right? He wasn't going to die in a powerful way. He wasn't going to die revolting against leading some charge to, to revolt against the government, right? He's going to die humbly. He's going to die in, in meekness and weakness, so let's, let's hold those two ends of his life together and see how those things all fit together as we even go and celebrate Christmas this week. As we think about his birth, let us not forget his death and let's, let us not forget what that means for us as his followers and his disciples. Let's pray. God, we do ask that you would come and disrupt our lives. God, that you would shake us up, that you would shake us out of our, our sloth, shake us out of uh, our comfort with the things of this world. 
And it's not, not that we can't celebrate Christmas and give gifts and enjoy nice things. But God, let our hearts and our minds be focused on what really matters. Let us love our families well. Let us speak graciously and humbly and, and boldly to those we encounter who don't know you. Let us show the world that our hope is in the King of Kings who came to reign, who came to establish his kingdom, and that his kingdom is here and we live in a new reality, even though those around us cannot see it. May we live out the reality of your kingdom. May we be those who slowly and methodically, day in and day out, live the Christian life, who glorify you, who come and gather together as your people and worship you and then go out into the world to live as as your ambassadors. God, thank you for all these reminders. Thank you that the strength to do this does not come from within us. It comes from you. It comes from your spirit living in us. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand as we sing our last song.